Romans 16, verses 1 through 27. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persisus, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Susipiter, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Thank you for that reading, Patty. And I think you have to admire her courage to take on all of those names. And she did it flawlessly. <clears throat> it's great to be here. We love to be in this congregation. I don't know if most of you know that back in August, I was called to a part-time ministry responsibility at Calvary Presbyterian in Willow Grove. So that's why you haven't seen us very often. But 
We're doing the best we can to keep our foot in this church as well. And I just want you to know it's a special delight to be here with you all. I hope they're not listening or will listen to um, the live stream over at Willow Grove as I confess that I'm giving them all recycled sermons so far. That's been a real treat for me. When you preach here, though, you get assigned a passage, and it has never worked out that I've had a sermon on the shelf, so I've had to work at it. And I was assigned Romans 16, and the wonderful thing about that is you really get to learn something and ask the Lord to make this passage gripping to me so that I have something to say to God's people. So it's been a real pleasure to get ready to preach to you. I want to mention to you that there is one commentary on Romans that to me stands above them all, and that's the commentary by John Murray, who was for many years professor of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary. That was completed in 1965, and according to the tastes of many, that means it's dated. But I wonder how that squares with the idea that the Word of God lives and abides forever. If a commentary is a good one, how could it be dated? I don't think it's dated at all. Now, one of the things about Murray's commentary on Romans is how beautifully it's written. I know there are some English teacher literature types in this congregation. If you want to see how English prose can be written precisely, you can't do better than to look at how John Murray wrote his commentary on Romans. But then there's something else about it, and that's the devotional quality of this commentary. When you read it, you repeatedly find that you are brought face to face with the Lord and the need to worship. Now listen to the way he introduces the letter to the Romans. So I'll quote him. The epistle to the Romans is God's word. Its theme is the gospel of his grace, and the gospel bespeaks the marvels of his condescension and love. If we are not overwhelmed by the glory of that gospel and ushered into the holy of holies of God's presence, we have missed the grand purpose of this sacred deposit. Well, as this sermon series on Romans comes to a conclusion over the next couple of weeks, as I understand it, it's good to ask this question. Have I learned to use the letter to the Romans to enter the holy of holies of God's presence? Do I listen to the preaching from this letter to be overwhelmed by the glory of the gospel that Paul wanted to preach to the Romans, and as a kind of compromise, he ended up writing it out to them? And thank God that he did. Now, as we come to this chapter, I can't resist trying to cover the whole thing. And I've got three simple divisions for you that I'll attempt to cover. 
What's more challenging is to try to distill all of this into one main message for you. So here's my attempt to do that. I want John Murray's ears, words to ring in our ears. The epistle to the Romans is God's word. Now we're hearing God's word this morning in Romans 16. What, would sh- what should we do with it? Have you learned the answer to question 90 of the shorter catechism? How is the word to be read and heard that it may become powerful to salvation? The answer is that the word may become powerful to salvation. We must attend to it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Receive it with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Well, my main point for you is from these words in the catechism, lay it up in our hearts, practice it in our lives. So the first thing we want to do is look at this list of names. Suppose you were reading the letter to the Romans for the first time and you skip to chapter 16 to see how it ends. And you're curious to know how something that is called the Word of God would end. And so you come to Romans 16 and you begin to read, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And on and on it goes with greeting people that you have no idea who they are, you may be thinking, this doesn't look like the Word of God to me. This looks like a letter that was written, and a lot of people are mentioned, and for no particular point that I can figure out. How can this be called the Word of God? Well, I think that's a legitimate question. The answer has everything to do with the way God revealed himself to us in writing, in Scripture. And I want to quote, again, one more quote from one of my favorite commentators on the whole Bible, Gerhardus Voss, who wrote that God has not revealed his mind in a way that we might expect. And here's how he put it. God has not revealed himself in a school, but in the covenant. And the covenant as a communion of life is all comprehensive, embracing all the conditions and interests of those involved in it. There is a knowledge and an imparting of knowledge here, but in a most practical way, and not merely by theoretical instruction. Ah, that's the key. We might expect if God's going to communicate to us directly in writing, it ought to be theoretical instruction, or it ought to seem like it comes from a classroom. But instead, God did not follow man's expectations and answer our curiosity in the way we would like. We would probably expect a word from God to be detached from our regular lives and divorced from 
all the messy problems and pleasures of where we live, and instead God has revealed himself in the actual living of people's lives. What it means to reveal himself in a covenant. The covenant is a relationship with God lived out in every detail of our lives. And he used real people in real situations. God revealed himself in history. Now, there's a list of names here in Romans 16. And I know Pastor Sam is going to deal with something of who these people are. I'm not going to do that. I'll leave that to him. And instead, take note that this list of names ought to be a kind of ringing echo in our ears of lists of names elsewhere in the Bible. This isn't an isolated thing, listing people's names in God's revelation. Just think about what you would encounter if you were a first-time reader of the gospel according to Matthew. You come to the first chapter and you get a long list of names that is a genealogy. And there are all kinds of lists like this. You can go back to the list of names of the exiles, at least the heads of the groups of people who left Babylon after the captivity. Or even way back into Genesis, think of the list of the 70, the family of Jacob who went down to Egypt because of the famine. Way back in Genesis Five, we read, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And you read over and over again of people who were born. And this brings up an important point, that Eve gave birth at all was a stupendous breakthrough. There should have been death, and nothing but death, after the disobedience in Eden, and that was always the devil's design, death. The devil hates children coming into the world. He loves abortion. He loves monstrosities like the one-child policy that China had. He loves filling people with fear to bring children into a world that is so terrible. So the birth of a child is like an offensive thrust from the kingdom of God into the kingdom of Satan. It's like a rocket exploding in the midst of the devil's work. And so these names of those who have been born are recorded. Every child that's born is in some ways a confirmation of the promise that a descendant of Eve would be born and strike the final fatal blow against the serpent. That is the first promise of redemption in Genesis 3.15. These lists of names are like a stake in the ground to say that the devil is not winning. His kingdom of death is being turned back. God is the Lord of life. David wrote this in Psalm 8, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, if 
lists of names are important, you might ask the question, after the birth of the Christ and those lists of names that trace the bloodline of the Messiah down to the promised king, now that that's accomplished, might there not be any more reason to have a list of names? Tracing the line of David down to David's greater son is the point of the genealogies. But here in Romans 16, there is another list of names. And the point of this is that now people in the church of Jesus Christ, now they are in the true line of Abraham. The bloodline is not important anymore. These people in Romans 16 were Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free. They were all believers in Jesus Christ. They shared in the church of Christ. They were partners with the great apostle in the work of the gospel. And so their names were recorded. And it becomes a message to us that if you are a follower of Jesus, your name is known. Your life is significant. Your name might not appear in Holy Scripture, but your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Your names are written on his hands. When Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, probably the greatest preacher of the 20th century, was facing death, he was asked by someone in his last hours, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, isn't it a great comfort now as you face death that so many people were helped by your ministry? And what he said was fascinating and right on point to this passage. Do not rejoice that the devils are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. The greetings to people who were part of the church in Rome is a wonderful example of God keeping track of our names. You and I, as we hear this, can rejoice in something most important. If we are united to Jesus Christ, our names are written in heaven. We will never be forgotten. We will never be lost. So let this lodge in your heart. Let's lay this up in our hearts. When you wake up in the morning and the troubles of life begin to crowd in to your mind, let this be your identity. My name is written on his hands. So a list of names can actually fill us with encouragement. Now, there's a change of mood when you get to verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. The very emotion seems to change from the warmth of affection for people in the church to a strong warning about the unity of the church being ruined. Remember, God's word comes to us in the covenant. The reality is that life in the covenant of grace involves war. 
The church will always be under attack. And one of the devil's favorite strategies is to stir up division. Get the people in the church to start fighting and quarreling with each other, and that church will lose all its influence in the surrounding culture. So we shouldn't be surprised in a change of mood and in a change of subject here in chapter 16. Paul warns about people who will deceive the hearts of the naive in verse 18. The call here is to recognize we are in a fight, we're under attack, and we need to beware as we seek always to accept all people, which is one of the most important things we can do, to yet leave aside any kind of discernment as to where people are at in their lives. It's one of the most important things we can do, and we need to be aware that a disposition to avoid conflict at all cost could cause us to let things slip in and to go on that never have any business of going on. What I mean is that we may be so consistently attempting to be as nice as, as we can that we will never assume anything but the best is ever at work in people. And I say this very frankly, preaching to myself, confessing my own default way of operating is to avoid conflict at any cost and to rather always think nothing but the best of everyone. And that can get people to praise you as a nice person, but what if that leads to the kind of naivete that allows evil to creep into the church? If the default way of operating is nothing but niceness, could it be possible that a charming domestic abuser could slip into the church, use his charm to inoculate himself from legitimate scrutiny, and a good shepherd would be the one required to see through that and to listen to any testimony of the truth? Now, do you hear any echo from God's word in this language? I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil in verse 19. Have you ever heard those words, good and evil? Do they ring out for you, perhaps from Genesis chapter 3, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? set this up as crucial from the beginning. Good and evil was at the heart of the probation in Eden. And don't miss the heart of the challenge that was there to obey God out of loyalty to him and obedience to his word, unquestioned, loyalty above all else to God and his word. That's the foundation for life under the covenant. It's often assumed that God didn't want Adam and Eve to know good and evil. No, he did. He wanted them to get to know it, and in that way to become more mature in a moral way, 
by obeying him through the assault of the devil and coming out on the other side having been obedient and having eyes wide open to the fact that even in Eden, a serpent can enter in. That would have been a knowledge of good and evil that was righteous and that would have led them beyond the probation to then eat from the tree of life and live forever, inoculated against all evil. But of course, what happened is our first parents, left to the freedom of their own will, fell from that good estate they were in by eating the forbidden fruit, and they came to know good and evil the way that was never intended by being defiled by it and being evil themselves. The apostle is saying, you need to be on the alert, not to be naive, but to have your senses trained as to good and evil. Now, it can be tiring to be always at war. We long for peace. Paul knew that, and so he left the Romans with something to keep them from throwing in the towel. As we're thinking about this basic opposition of good and evil, we ought to be thinking of Genesis 1 through 3 and the ancient promise, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Notice how updated this promise is by the apostle now. The original promise in Genesis 3.15 was that the serpent, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Paul gives a reworking of that promise to make some things really clear. The serpent was indeed the devil. And the bruising that he is in line for will be more than an injury, it will be a mortal blow. Not only that, but the seed of the woman, the promised redeemer, is now represented by his bride, his church. People like those named in Romans 16, the body of Christ, they are going to be involved in the final destruction of the evil serpent. So as you and I follow Jesus and stand firm in the faith, what an encouragement to know we are involved in crushing the head of the old serpent. Of course, it's Jesus himself that will ultimately throw him into the eternal lake of fire. But you and I, even now, are a part of that overthrow that is to come. So let's lay this up in our hearts, standing for Christ, killing sin that is in our flesh, loving others in the name of Christ, feasting on the riches of God's word, coming near God in the breaking of the bread, doing whatever it is God's given us to do in our lives with all of our hearts to glorify him. That is crushing the kingdom of the, de of the devil and a part of bringing it to total destruction. Now, finally, we come to the end of the letter. Paul ends with 
doxology. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Often a benediction is pronounced over the congregation calling upon God's blessing on the lives of God's people. And here, all of us are called to lift up our hands to God, the only wise God, and to give him praise. This is a way for us to be established. Established by hearing what Paul has written out in this letter and letting it move us toward God by faith in Jesus Christ to justify us and cleanse us from all of our sins and to put us on a pathway that leads to glory and resurrection. At the beginning of the letter, Paul had wrote that he planned to visit them. The purpose of the visit would be to strengthen their faith and be strengthened by them, he added. The strengthening was to be by his preaching of the gospel. And instead, he wrote that gospel out as a letter. And that's what we've been preaching on through these past months, the written record of what Paul the Apostle preached. And as he comes to the end of the letter, he wants to make sure that everyone understands that he has given them his gospel. Though in written form, this is what he preached. And this is what is able to establish them. The mention in Romans 11 of a great mystery, the unbelief of the Jews, that was so troubling, but could be understood as part of God's wise plan to spread redemption beyond the narrow borders of Israel to the very ends of the earth, is brought up again in this doxology, the mystery of God meaning not something that's mystical or beyond language, only possible of being felt or being entered into with the guidance of a guru. That's not the kind of mystery he's talking about. It's what God reveals. He has revealed it over ages to come by promise in the scriptures. We've already seen how the ancient promise of Genesis 3.15 is now unfolding in the experience of the church, standing strong in their faith despite the attacks of the devil. As the church stands strong, they are crushing the head of the old serpent according to the revelation of God's mystery. We should seek to lay this word up in our hearts. Spend time in quiet, taking it in, praying over it, letting it move our hearts, letting this word shape us. We should practice this word in our lives. It should give us guidance about how to live every day. A man named J.P. Moreland who's a philosophy professor at a Christian school in California, testifies about 
an awful bout of anxiety that he suffered. It seemed to come out of nowhere. It utterly paralyzed him for months, and he needed counseling and he needed medication, and he recommends those as possible options to get through a crisis like that. But he also believed that God was calling him to learn something about how to fight this kind of attack on our humanity. He wrote a book recounting his experience, and it's buttressed by recent studies about how the brain works. And that is by practice, you can actually change the normal pathways that thoughts travel down your brain. And for Moreland, God's word was the chief instrument in that process in his own life. He would say that if you're anything like him, you often start your day with guilt over how much you have put off doing, with accusations that seem to bubble up from your heart that you don't measure up, or with fears that something foreboding is probably lurking out there for you. And that's what you're going to face in the near future. Moreland recommends identifying those thoughts as nothing but bad habits. And he writes that the habit is able to be reshaped in your brain. You can identify these habits that are bad as lies and purpose to reject them and shape our brains in new ways. This can be a way of laying it up in our hearts, practicing it in our lives. We can be stronger. Romans 16 is to him who is able to strengthen you. You and I can be made stronger. The preaching of Jesus Christ is meant for us to enter our minds and hearts and bring about the obedience of faith. So as we take in the letter to the Romans, which is the word of God, let's lay it up in our hearts, practice it in our lives, and live in praise to the one who is at the center of this word, even Jesus Christ. To him be everlasting praise. Let's pray. Lord, would you bless the preaching of your word to your people. May your Holy Spirit make it food for our souls. We give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.